inspired you to take on a full-length Glenn Burke biography, and the first outside of his autobiography. Right. Um, well, you know, the niche I'm trying to develop as an author is writing uh, narrative nonfiction, sports, history, social justice-related books. Um, my first book was a biography of Perry Wallace called mm -hmm. Sing, uh, Strong Inside. It was uh, Perry was the first black basketball player in the SEC. Oh, wow. uh, played at Vanderbilt in the late 60s. Uh, my second book, Games of Deception, was about the first U.S. Olympic uh, men's basketball team at the Nazi Olympics in 1936. And I just really, uh, those are my, my interests in life for sports and history, you know, and um, I was talking to my literary agent uh, named Alex Shane about, um, you know, what my next book topic could be. And we were um, batting around ideas and he was the one who first mentioned uh, Glenn Burke. And I thought back to Glenn's 1978 baseball card, you know, when I was uh, eight years old, I had that card. I remembered it vividly when Alex said his name with Glenn in his Dodgers road uniform, you know, um, kind of one of those classic tops posed pictures. And, um, you know, just thinking about the fact that he was the first openly gay player, that he had invented the high five, and that this story took place in the 1970s, which is somebody born in 1970, you know, it was an automatically sort of interesting decade to me. Um, but also what I love to do with my books is put the character and the story in the context of the times. And so thinking about the importance of the 1970s in a gay rights movement and some backlash to that movement, I thought would make this just a fascinating story. And I couldn't wait to get started. You know, I got started that same day that we first talked about it as an idea. Wow, yes, it, it sounds like you've kind of cornered the market on marginalized athletes in perilous situations as, as a genre. I don't know, is, is that, <laughs> it's kind of hard to put in a blurb, but uh, right. yeah, that's, wow. Like, uh, yeah, Glenn Burke uh, ran into a lot of difficulties in the 70s. I, I'm not sure it quite is up there with black athletes going up against the Nazis. Like uh, he did go against Kurt Schilling, for example. So <laughs> that. yeah, cheap shot, don't care, gonna do that's it anyway. Good. I like but, it. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's and it, the interesting thing about defining Glenn Burke as the first openly gay player is it, it's you have to kind of use that very kind of specific definition because he never actually came out to my knowledge to any of his teammates and, and it's nowhere in the book that he did. But also it very much as I wrote in the review, you didn't have to be Tim Curry at the end of Clue to figure it out like it's, <laughs> it, it was there right in front of so many of them. And there are moments in the book, like uh, one of Dusty Baker's relatives uh, meeting him for the first time. And when he left the room, immediately she says, yeah, he's gay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you have to, if you wanna be precise about the definition, I guess it de depends, like how do you define out, you know, or, or openly gay? I mean, his teammates uh, pretty much knew, right? I mean, it was the reason why he was traded from the Dodgers. It was the reason why he was run off the Oakland A's. Yes, he hadn't had a press conference to announce it to the whole world, but he was also living in the Castro in the off season, <laughs> certainly wasn't hiding it then. That uh, was the reason that cost his, him his baseball career and even his friends on the teams knew it. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say it was, it was an open secret maybe is the best way to put it, but it, you can't fit all that in a title <laughs> on the yeah. cover of a book. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that he was open. He, he came out publicly, for those who don't know, in 1982, which was two years after his last professional game 
uh, in Inside Sports Magazine, a long feature article, and then on the Today Show in an interview with Brian Gumbel. Yeah, and as you write in the book, that was at least part of an effort to put himself out there and with the hopes of maybe getting back into baseball, which in the early 80s, uh, it's that's quite a hope uh, at that point, considering what, what baseball, I mean, we know what baseball is now and what it must have been 30 years ago at that point. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's almost like an emotional moment when you realize that, that he is being his honest and open self publicly for everyone to see for the first time with the idea of getting back into the sport that did its damn best to try to stomp out any image of that. Yeah, it is a poignant scene. And uh, just to think about what his mindset was at that time. And, um, you know, the reason he felt that way is his pride as an athlete. I think, you know, he, he wanted to show it wasn't because I wasn't good enough to make it in the major leagues, you know, that I was sent down to AAA and that, you know, I didn't have this chance to fulfill my dream as a major league player. He wanted to show everyone it was because of homophobia that he was run out of the game. And maybe there would be a team that would recognize that and see that he still had talent and potential and would sign him. Um, you know, but he was also at a point in his life where he really hadn't figured out what to do next with it, you know, um, gay or not, you know, the, one of the um, elements to his story was that he first and foremost saw himself as an athlete and his whole identity had been around being an athlete. Um, he didn't necessarily take high school that seriously. You know, he only spent a brief period in college, uh, you know, his heart was set on a pro sports career, which he deserved. And he worked hard to make that happen, but he had a hard time adjusting to life outside of sports, um, thinking about, you know, what a career might be. And I think if he had to choose his ideal career would have been as a coach and a teacher, but how many schools were hiring gay black men as coaches or teachers in that era. So he was really up against it in terms of what's gonna be next for him uh, in his life. Yeah, and I want to dive deep into that in just a second. We'll do the show open, and then we will kind of go into that in depth. This is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network, the Outsports Baseball Podcast, episode number 67, the Francisco Cordova episode of Three Strikes You're Out. <laughs> My name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer to Outsports Baseball Prospectus and stand-up comedian, throwing my name in the hat to get vaxxed maybe next month. That'd be fun. Uh, the other voice you are hearing is the author of the brand new biography and excellent book, Singled Out, The True Story of Glenn Burke. Andrew Moranis is joining us. Andrew, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Ken. Uh, uh, your review in Outsports was just amazing. It made more than my day. I don't know how to put it, but it just made me feel so good. I was happy to share it with all my friends and, you know, uh, editors. <laughs> and um, it's a real pleasure to get a chance to talk to you. If my review gave you kind of any thrill at all reading it, then that was the experience I had reading your book. So I'm glad it was reciprocal for even just a little bit like that. It's, all uh, right. Yeah, I Thank can't, you. to everybody listening, I, I can't recommend the book enough. Uh, it is available pretty much wherever books are sold at this point. That's right. That's yep. right. You can get it at bookstores or online. Awesome. And uh, yeah, it is... Um, to dive into the athletic background of Glenn Burke, and this was kind of a thought that I had as, as I was thinking... Uh, about what you wrote about his growing up in the Bay Area. You mentioned that his first love is basketball, correct? That's right. Yeah. He, he, he loved playing basketball. He was a regular at, at Bushrod Park, which is, you know, the sort of proving ground in the East Bay. Uh, and, you know, 
and on his deathbed, he even said that the one regret in his life was that he hadn't given basketball more of a shot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what you read about, especially in his semi-pro basketball games, uh, that he was almost like a local legend in the area. Because he sure was. Uh, yeah. And he led his high school team to an undefeated season Jeez. as a senior. Uh, they didn't have um, a state championship in California back then, I guess because the state is so big. They had a Southern California champion and a Northern California champion. His team won the Northern California championship. It was called the Tournament of Champions. Um, he used to play pickup games against the players from Cal Berkeley when he was in high school. Uh, and held his own, more than held his own in those games. And some of those players were guys like Phil Chenier, who went on to play hmm. in the NBA. Wow. Um, his baseball teammates would talk about how much he just talked about playing basketball. Uh, they would play pickup games maybe in their hotel parking lots, and Glenn would just impress them with his dunks and his you know, acrobatics. He was just uh, Rupert Jones, who played a long career in the major leagues, said that Glenn was the most athletic person, best athlete, that he's ever seen. Hmm. And they, they went to the same high school at Berkeley High. And we know how many great athletes have come out of the San Francisco Bay Area. And, and Rupert says Glenn was the very best of all of them. Good Lord. Yeah. And to be ahead of guys like, you know, a Frank Robinson or a Ricky Henderson or a Joe Morgan, for example, like that's that's something. Yeah, it's really something. The thought I had, and, and this is very much a hypothetical, but I wondered that if he had chosen basketball, would there have been maybe a slightly better opportunity for a happier course of his life and a happier ending, if only because I think part of the reason why baseball was such a difficult experience for him was because it was such an institution in the country at the time. It was so mainstream. And the NBA, while it was a major league, it was nowhere near as popular as it became in the Magic Bird era of the 80s, for example. So I wonder, could he have existed as an out-gay athlete in the NBA with, without as many eyes on him as it, as it would have been in, with his baseball career? Yeah, it's possible. It's interesting to think about that because one of the things that Glenn said was on his mind as a minor league player and working his way up to the majors is he was kind of unsure how good he should be, you know, at baseball. In some sense, he thought, if I'm just sort of mediocre, there'll be less attention on me, you know, and maybe I can maintain this secret a little easier. If I'm too good, there'll be a lot of scrutiny. The spotlight will be on me. I won't be able to hide. Mm -hmm. But at other times, he told himself, well, the best way for me to survive is to hit 330 and steal 50 bases and then nobody can say shit to me, you know? Yeah. So it was a little bit of ambivalence there. I do agree that uh, the NBA uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, wasn't, you know, what it is now. Uh, so it's possible. I think the other factor is that, uh, you know, much more African-American sport. And so you may have felt uh, more at home in that regard, even just in the, in the locker room. But on the other hand, you can't say, uh, I mean, certainly there were there were gay players in the NBA at that point. They didn't choose to come out. So there must have been some reason why that was the case. Even, you know, today we would have seen Jason Collins and John Amici. Not too many guys um, have chosen to do that even within the NBA. So I don't I don't know if you can say for certain that it would have been much easier for him. Yeah, it's it's probably a pipe dream, really. It's, it's really just based on the, the thought I had that because it wasn't as public a league at the time that that maybe he could have found a niche uh, before everything kind of blew up around him. And, and you mentioned uh, his, his wondering vocally about how good should I be uh, while living my life honestly. And I think that only kind of underscores, and I'm going to kind of do a cross marginalized group comparison here, because you hear from black players all the time 
uh, and this is going back to the days of integration, that you had to be a star in order right. to make sure that you could stick around in baseball, that if you gave them any reason for your, by your performance to doubt you, that if you weren't a straight white male, Major, major League Baseball would cut you right away. And I kind of think that Glenn Burke's, the, the story of his two and a half year playing career, unfortunately, underscores that both as a black man and definitely as a gay man, that he kind of needed to be performing at star quality almost from day one in order to kind of avoid what ended up happening to him running into the El Campanases and Tommy Lasordas of the world. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, having written a, uh, my first book about, um, you know, a black basketball pioneer, you know, he talks a lot about the fact that there weren't going to be a whole lot of uh, African-American bench players, you know, among those pioneers, right. whether it was in college or the NBA, you know, you had to be essentially a superstar to, to earn that chance. And you see that with Glenn when he's traded from the Dodgers, you, you could call Glenn a fourth outfielder essentially at that time. And they trade him for another fourth outfielder, <laughs> Billy North, you know? And so um, you know, if he wasn't going to be starting in that Dodger outfield, he was expendable. Um, he was expendable for, for other reasons too. And Tommy Lasorda uh, had a gay son, Tommy Jr., uh, Glenn and Tommy Jr. Uh, were at minimum friends. Uh, Glenn was asked many times, you know, was it more than just a friendship? And he said, that's really nobody's business. Um, but regardless, Tommy Lasorda Sr. didn't didn't like that. Uh, Al Campanis didn't like it. Campanis had been a big bo booster of Glenn's as he was making his way up through the Dodger system. And after the 77 season, he has a meeting with Burke where Glenn thinks it's a chance to talk about what his role is going to be in 78 coming off, starting two games in the NLCS, starting game one of the world series. Instead, it's the Dodgers offering to pay Glenn off to get married <laughs> to a woman, you know, and when they say yes, he's like, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. And so that's one thing you really have to admire about Glenn is that he stood up for who he was. Uh, he wasn't going to hide who he was when he was confronted with it. But he also knew that, you know, that courage was really just the end of the line for him with the Dodgers. And it turned out the A's were in a much more hospitable place for him. Yeah, it, it feels like uh, the narrative of, of his brief career is that it feels like it's on the precipice of something good happening to him at least a couple times uh, between his first year with the Dodgers, where he clearly starts fitting into the clubhouse almost from the day he comes up, which for any rookie at all is miraculous, let alone someone who is not hiding the fact that he's gay to his teammates. Uh, but he comes up, he's, he's cracking Richard Pryor jokes in the locker room. Uh, players like Dusty Baker are inviting him over for dinner. It's, it's really, it, it, that first year feels like that it's, this could have been something special. And then unfortunately, as you say, that's when the meeting with Campanis happens and everything kind of turns around on, on a dime with, with that. And that's, that's the real yeah, it's, it's, career. What I found so interesting was here was a player. And if, you know, if you want to take shots at him as a player, people can do that, but he certainly fit right into that team. And this was a, a great team, you know, that's full of veteran players who are well known, you know, now 40, 50 years later, you can rattle off that Dodger lineup of the 1970s. And it's a rookie who they considered the most popular player on the team, you know, uh, who's not even starting. But they said that Glenn was funny, that he loved to play his music. Uh, he was the best dancer on the team. And this is the disco era. And they would go out to discos. And Glenn was, you know, by far the most popular guy at the discos they would go to. Um, and 
someone like Dusty Baker really took Glenn under his wing. Uh, Davy Lopes said that he was the life of the clubhouse. When he was traded to the A's, there were reporters who didn't know the real reason why he was traded, but they noticed how sort of gloomy the locker room was the <laughs> next day. And they said, well, the, the day that Glenn was traded, Steve Garvey and Don Sutton were crying God. at their lockers. Mm. And that's really remarkable. I mean, I don't think that even other popular players, you don't really hear about their teammates crying, you know, in the clubhouse when that happens. And that just shows you know, what, what a force, what a presence, what a charismatic uh, person that Glenn was a strong character, you know, in that, in that veteran team. Yeah. And when you think about the, the scope of the personalities that just in the names you mentioned, where on one hand you have Dusty Baker, the hipster jazz aficionado and kind of the efficient of all that is cool about baseball and then on the other you have Steve Garvey whose <laughs> ambition was to run uh, for governor as a Republican until everyone discovered he'd fathered half of Southern California <laughs> you're right they're both emotionally attached to this guy that they've only known for one season and that tells you just how much Glenn Burke ingratiated himself into that clubhouse yeah and it really shows um this you know the a really touching side of Glenn's personality also is that he tried to bring people together, you know, and he had that reputation going back to high school in Berkeley at Berkeley high, which is just a, just a really fascinating school. It's the only high school in this big city of Berkeley bringing together people who are maybe professors, kids, you know, from mm -hmm. Cal Berkeley, bringing together teenagers who are joining the black Panthers, you know, at that <laughs> moment in history. So it's just a fascinating place. And they all said that Glenn was the one that was friends with everybody, regardless of who they were. Um, you see the same thing happen with the Dodgers. And it's what makes it especially painful to see the way Glenn is shunned by people when, when he was the, representing the exact opposite of that throughout his entire life. Yeah. And, and the people doing the shunning, I mean, that's the essence of the baseball establishment of that time, which is Lasorda and Campanis. And then later with the A's, Billy Martin, like the guys who have literally been in the game for decades. And and then, of course, Al Campanis, about a decade later, famously gives one of the most racist interviews in baseball history on Nightline. And this was also someone, by the way, who up until that point was known for being like one of the scouts who was an encourager of Jackie Robinson. So right, a teammate like he, of Jackie Robinson's in the minor leagues. Um, yeah, right. So these are the he's one of the guys that was considered one of the good guys, right? Yeah. So even <laughs> yeah. even a guy who was known for being someone who was open minded and inclusive when it came to race, at least for I guess nineteen forties baseball, kind of showed his true colors by the end. And and yeah, Glenn, Glenn Burke obviously saw that a decade in advance. Yeah, and you know I. I some of the issues you're getting at here, I, I wrote about in Glenn's and then describing his minor league days, you know, in the first city that he plays minor league baseball in is Ogden, Utah, you know, yeah. and here he's come from Oakland and all of a sudden he's thrust into Utah, which couldn't probably be more different. Um, the same feeling for the Latino players, you know, and you, you don't necessarily think about that that often as a baseball fan of the extra difficulty, the extra challenge that black players, Latino players, gay players in this instance have trying to perform at their highest in these venues, in these settings that aren't that supportive and are actually, you know, are the opposite of supportive to them. Um, and just the extra hurdle they have. So even by just making it to the major leagues, Glenn had already accomplished so much. Absolutely. And it's interesting too, it's uh, again, kind of the, the dichotomy of his life 
that coming up through the minor leagues in, in places like Ogden, Utah, and then playing for the ultra conservative Los Angeles Dodgers. And at the same time, going home every winter to the Castro district in San Francisco and being a goddamn celebrity there from, from how you describe it, that it's, yeah. it's, it, the mo it's almost like the moment that he was back and where he was allowed to be himself, like he flourished for a couple of years, like, like he never could as an athlete. Yeah. Uh, what, what a disparity, right? What a dichotomy yeah. to think about these two uh, worlds that he existed in uh, one where he could be himself where he couldn't be himself and yet he was still very popular amongst his peers in in both situations um you know living in the castro as a major league player you also think about this you know how interesting it is to think about this is pre-social media where <laughs> basically he felt safe that he wasn't going to be outed you know yeah. uh in being in all the bars in, in the castro during the off season you know and he wasn't um i also think about the, that time period, you know, it's it's pre-HIV AIDS, and he describes it as a planet for gays, people, you know, where he can be, um, he's just loving every aspect of it, and he's only able really to enjoy that, that sense of freedom uh, for a very brief period, because, you know, right after he's kicked out of baseball, uh, is essentially when HIV arrives in San Francisco. Yeah. And and it's it that also coincides that that brief period right after he's kicked out of baseball and kind of before HIV arrives that coincides with him joining the gay softball league in San Francisco, which was far and away his most enjoyable athletic experience. It sounded like at least since his high school basketball days. Yeah, he, can you imagine you're playing on a softball team and then some guy shows up and he's the former center fielder for the Dodgers <laughs> and it wasn't 40 years ago. It was like two years ago, you know. Yeah. So. He's in the prime of his career. He's by far the best player, on, but it is a very competitive league. It's a good league, um, but, you know, Glenn is dominating this league. They win the uh, Gay World Series. He wins medals in the first two gay games, which are both held in San Francisco. And like I said, I mean, his identity as an athlete, that didn't disappear just because he wasn't in the major leagues. You know, that was something that he really valued. Um, he was treated like a celebrity uh, and, you know, that sort of fed into some of the demons also, though, because, um, you know, he never had to pay for a, a drink, right? He um, was taken care of in a lot of ways. And we know that that only lasts for so long, you know, and I think that that made the, the fall even harder because he knew he had once been, you know, numero uno <laughs> in this setting. And all of a sudden, when he really needs people, uh, gay or straight, you know, there aren't that many hands uh, lifting him up when he needed it. Yeah, that's kind of the the stereotypical celebrity in general story of, of someone who's, you know, living it up through all the good times. But then as soon as as soon as the good times go away, it's you find out if you have any real friends. And unfortunately, right. for a couple uh, a few years uh, to the point where he was homeless toward the uh, toward the end. Uh, yeah, there, there weren't a lot of people that he could lean on. And I think that that's one of the big tragedies of his life uh, that even the people that were closest to him at the time where he needed someone to support him as an openly gay player in baseball, you mentioned that the person that he saw in an on again, on off again relationship throughout his career essentially was in it for selfish reasons, right? Yeah. He had a partner named Michael Smith that, um, you know, I, I want to be 
careful. How I, I didn't meet him. I, I, I'm speaking about him based on the research, just like pretty much everybody else in the book. But it sounds like he was using Glenn. You know, um, he was using Glenn's celebrity. Uh, he would demean Glenn in a lot of social situations. And Glenn felt like there were times where uh, this man, Michael Smith, just, you know, admired his, his body and his physicality, um, but would put down uh, his intellect, you know, um, didn't necessarily fully appreciate what it took to make it to the major leagues and wanted Glenn to come out before Glenn was ready to, you know, wanted to make that splash to the point where he's loudly talking about his relationship with Glenn at the World Series you know, at, at Dodger Stadium and people are starting to turn their heads and one of Glenn's other gay friends comes over and tells Michael Smith, you know, be quiet. You know, he doesn't, this is not what he needs in the middle of the World Series right now. Um, even in, in minor league games would bring maybe a busload of friends and, and Glenn would almost feel uh, embarrassed that these people were there to see him play with the intention of, of outing him when he wasn't ready to do that. Even the Inside Sports article there was kind of an ulterior motive uh, that Smith had. They, they were on a, the off-again side of their on-again, off-again relationship. And Smith felt like if he got this publicity for Glenn, that maybe Glenn would appreciate that. And that would be a way back into his good graces. Um, Glenn also thought they would split the money that Smith was paid for that article. And he never saw any of it. Jeez. They shared a condo in San Francisco. And Glenn thought that his name had been put on the deed to it. And it turns out it wasn't, you know. And so part of Glenn's financial downfall is that he was taken advantage of. Yeah, the most important thing about coming out is that it really has to be on your terms. And you would think that if anyone should understand that, it's another gay man. And it apparently either didn't occur to him or didn't matter, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, I think probably it didn't matter. You know, he, he was interested in, in that story and that the the shock value of that story of, of this uh, gay Dodger, you know, and uh, it seems to me that was overriding even the, the personal affection that he had for Glenn. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the course of writing this book, uh, as we kind of talked about at the top, you set Glenn Burke's story within the context of the major LGBTQ developments throughout the 1970s from Stonewall through the Anita Bryant's controversies and the Anita Bryant awfulness through Harvey Milk's career and into the AIDS epidemic. And I, uh, again, uh, am, as, as I mentioned in the review, that, that probably is my favorite part of the book, and was uh, that your intent from the beginning to be the first book that at least I'm aware of that sets baseball history in a specific LGBTQ history context? Uh, it was my intent to write the book in that context, I wasn't thinking about it, whether it was the first book to do that or not. You know, I, I did know that essentially it was the first biography of a, of a gay male athlete in the US. I mean, Glenn wrote an autobiography with Eric Sherman and some other recent players have done autobiographies, but I, to my best of my knowledge, there hasn't been a biography of a gay male athlete, American athlete. Um, but with all my books, my favorite part is placing the story within the context of the place and the times that the main character existed um, to the extent that you can do that without making it a stretch. <laughs> you know, uh, if, if these historical events have nothing to do with your character, it turns the reader off, I think. But in this case, all these events had basically a direct impact on Glenn's life or that he was living in proximity to these events. You know, at the same time that 
Anita Bryant is leading her uh, anti-gay crusades in Florida. Glenn's there in spring training at Dodgertown. You know, um, he's living in the Castro about two blocks from Harvey Milk's camera store, you know, as Harvey Milk is ascending. Um, he's living there when Milk is assassinated. He's fighting for his career with two California baseball teams. At the same time, a California legislator named John Briggs is leading the effort to, you know, strip gays of their rights to have jobs, you know, uh, especially as teachers. Um, so all of these uh, events in the LGBTQ movement in the 70s are having a direct impact on Glenn's life. Uh, and so I thought that it was a natural uh, to do that in the story. Uh, in reading your review, it was the most personally meaningful thing for me to read. It really um, touched me emotionally to see what you had to say about that because I feel as a you know, baseball fan my entire life, that baseball should be for everybody, you know, and to read your words about how, you know, um, you sort of saw your life or the things that matter to you reflected in this baseball story for the first time. I mean, that, I couldn't get a higher compliment than that. So I, I really appreciate that, Ken. Thank you. Yeah. And I bring that up and we talked about this right before we started recording. I'll just bring it up again for the purpose of the podcast. But as a baseball nerd, you know, I, I breathe baseball books. Like I, I read the giant Ted Williams, the Henry Aaron's, the Jackie Robinson's, the Babe Ruth's by all like the Robert Creamers and the Ben Bradley juniors of the world. And so many of those great ones have that quality of them where you set this transcendent figure's career within the context of everything surrounding him in history. So I'm used to that as kind of, this is how you write a great baseball book. And as I was going through singled out, like the thought that kind of occurred to me is as we kept jumping back into moments like Harvey Milk, for example, was, oh my God, this is a book for me. This is a book for us. And that, that I think is my compliment to you. That's, that's, that's a feeling that I rarely, if ever, have gotten outside of maybe reading Billy Bean's autobiography, for example. Right. Um, and that's, well, you know, that, that's why I, I wanted to, to get that across in the review, I think. Well, thank you. And, you know, the other thing that I hope is that there are people who will pick up the book who are baseball fans who maybe wouldn't ordinarily pick up a book about gay rights movement of the 1970s. And now we'll learn something about it that they hadn't necessarily expected, um, especially young people. Uh, a lot of my, you know, my book's sort of officially considered a young adult book for high school kids, uh, wrote it in a way that it you know, most people won't even realize that is most more of a marketing uh, effort than a difference in writing a book. But a big part of my audience is high school kids, you know, and so I think there's a lot of young uh, people who are interested in baseball who are going to learn something uh, about um, gay people and about gay rights movement, about the horrors of the backlash to that movement, which you can still see parallels today. You know, and so my hope would be that this book would be meaningful uh, for gay readers and for straight readers alike. Yeah. And I'll tell you what I learned from it, uh, just as something that I never knew before. And I think this was right around uh, when Anita Bryant started becoming a, na a national figure for being so openly homophobic and campaigning against so many gay rights ordinances was the uh, mo uh, you mentioned the advocate had written out to yes. uh, every major league baseball team. And I want to say the mid 70s just to try to get in yeah, contact I think it was about 74. with any players who were gay. Mm -hmm. And, and they received the, you quoted a, 
a reply from the Minnesota Twins that just like chills you to the bone. That uh, oh gosh, you know, can I wish I had it in front of I, me? I could. Yeah, I, I actually I, I pulled I have that uh, bookmark here <laughs> uh, from Public Relations Director of the Twins, Tom Mee. The cop-out, immoral lifestyle of the tragic misfits espoused by your publication has no place in organized athletics at any level. Your colossal gall in attempting to ex extend your perversion to an area of total manhood is just simply unthinkable. First of all, that's the gayest response you could possibly give to <laughs> So well done there, Tom Me. But also, this, this, is, this is a Major League Baseball team reaching out to a nationwide magazine who can tell its entire readership about this in the seventies. <laughs> and that's the extent that they cared about it. Like that, that's how deep homophobia ran both in the country so, and in the game. Yeah. And so the twins put it on paper, but I bet pretty much every major league team felt the same way, you know, yeah. and it's just, it's, it's horrendous. Like you said, I mean, the guy's vocabulary is kind of impressive, but it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's startling for me to read that as I was doing the research for the book. Um, and that that's the context that Glenn was, I mean, Glenn probably read that. Right. And so you think that that's on his mind. And so people want to say like, well, what kind of ball player was he really? How could he be his best? You yeah. know, how could he perform at his best knowing that that's the environment that he's existing in and, and knowing that if he were to confide in someone that it would probably be the end of his career. Yeah. And it's, it's the real kind of unfortunate thing when you look at his career numbers from the big leagues, because to be, to be fair and completely honest, I mean, he is a below replacement level player by, by any statistical measure. And you compare that to what was being said about him by guys like Al Campanis as he was coming up through the minors, where he flashed all the tools you needed to see. He had the speed. He had the 15 to 20 home run power. He could hit you 270 to 300 at every level. This guy was a legit prospect. And I kind of wondered, and I, I have no idea if you had tried to find this out when you talked to guys like Dusty, mm -hmm. did anybody think that the one thing that was kind of holding him back at the big league level was that backlash and the fear of that backlash, that, that if that hadn't been there, he could have lived up to some of that potentially showed in the minors? Yeah, I, I, I sort of, that's my feeling, you know, um, and I thought that was a fair critique you made of the book that I probably didn't explicitly um, point that out enough. Um, but Dusty Baker said that Glenn's defensive abilities were clearly major league caliber. You know, he said he got to jump on the ball better than anybody. You know, Glenn had a great arm. He was fast. And in those days, I think you could exist as a major league outfielder with good defense and speed. You know, you didn't have to hit 30 home runs every year. I don't think in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, but uh, gay sports writers that I interviewed for the book, um, other people who sort of had a per good perspective said that there was no way that he could fulfill his athletic abilities with all of this on his mind. Um, and that there may have even been a subconscious, and I don't get into like amateur psychiatry or anything, but almost a subconscious desire to remove himself from that situation, you know, um, where you know you're not going to be valued uh, fully for who you are like you said, where he's living half the year in the Castro where everything is completely different, you know, it makes it hard to, to thrive in this repressive uh, hostile environment. Um, I mean, a team traded him because of who he was. Billy Martin said he was going to let him contaminate his team. Like the, the, what a mental game baseball is. 
And when all these types of thoughts are going around your head, you and also, you know, we've talked about like um, leaders like Dusty Baker. So in the 1970s, there were more black players in the major leagues than there are now, you know, mm-hmm. uh, proportionally. And um, they had sort of a support network, even across teams where Dusty said, you know, if we're in Pittsburgh, we're going to go have dinner or lunch with the Black Pirates, you know, or the Black Reds when we're in Cincinnati. And Glenn wasn't even able to sort of fully embrace that because he didn't want to hang out at the same places that these guys did. You know, if they were going to get together on off day or after the game, he wanted to go to the gay bars, right? Yeah. Whatever city they were in. And so that was an, if that was an important social network for the other Black players, and Glenn couldn't even participate in that, it just shows another mountain that he had to climb to be the best player that he could be. Yeah, you're, you're, when you're on the job, you're running into managerial ignorance and intransigence, and in some cases, open bigotry. And then when you're away from the game, your life is just kind of loneliness, except when you can actually escape and get away to the bars. And yeah, if that's the case, I could certainly understand why you'd want to get away from that as, as your job, even though that's the only thing you've known to this point. And again, right. that's kind of the central tragedy of, of Glenn Burke's life. And it's interesting to me, too, that Billy Martin uses the word contamination specifically. Really, Billy, you're going to contaminate a team led by a rageaholic, alcoholic bigot that that, that (laughs) you're worried about contamination from the outside? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, one of the things I tried to point out in the book, too, is how ridiculous it is when people will say, like, uh, a gay player would be a distraction for a team. Well, Tommy Lasorda was inviting Don Rickles into the clubhouse like minutes before playoff games, right? Mm -hmm. Charlie Finley, the owner of the A's, had a mechanical rabbit delivering baseballs to the umpires, you know, and had MC Hammer as his vice president of the team. So uh, Glenn was probably the least distraction on these teams. Yeah, when when Charlie Huff gave up Reggie Jackson's third home run of game six in that World Series, I'm sure the first thing he was thinking of, geez, is Glenn a top or a bottom? I don't know. (laughs) Right. So uh, just kind of looking kind of at his life in full and kind of reflecting on it from where we are today, what would you like to see Major League Baseball do as an organization to honor the legacy and honor the pioneering career of Glenn Burke? Well, go back to my first book again, Perry Wallace, uh, first black basketball player in the SEC, probably the smartest person that I've ever known. Um, He became a law professor at American University. And when he was playing in the 1960s, he was telling the truth about the racism that he was experiencing and white people didn't want to hear it. 40, 50 years later, he's um, brought back and honored by the same university, the same fan base that had run him off, you know, back when he was telling the same truth back in the 60s. And I asked him about that experience. And he said that, um, his phrase was reconciliation without the truth is just acting. And a lot of times organizations, businesses, families, you know, they want to have this sort of photo op <laughs> to show, oh, we're back together now. Isn't it great? But a lot of times they don't ever take the time to address the truth of how they got into that situation in the first place. And if that's the case, it's just for show. It's false. It's just acting. But if the truth is present, those reconciliation moments can be really meaningful and they can be really powerful. Um, In Perry Wallace's case, the truth was present through my book. Uh, Vanderbilt required it to be read by incoming freshman students two years in a row. Um, All the faculty read this book. And so when they invited Perry Wallace back to campus, 
they knew his story and they were asking him to tell it again, you know, and they wanted to hear it. And they felt like the only way that the institution could get better on race issues was to address the truth of the racism in the past. And so I think the same thing would apply for Major League Baseball, for the Dodgers, for the A's, is let's not just put Glenn Burke's picture on Instagram in June, you know, and say we celebrate Glenn Burke without acknowledging the truth of what the situation was, not be afraid of the truth, not try to push it away and wish it never happened. I mean, it happened. It, that's over now. Like, so what are we going to do now? You know, and how can we learn from what Glenn's experience was like, the good and the bad and the ugly of his complete true experience to make things better now? You know, and so if that happens, then I think that, you know, Glenn being sort of celebrated, as long as he's understood and his full experience is understood, that would be the best thing that could come of this. Um, and I would love to see it happen. I think this is the year to do it. Yes. Yeah. And having a book like yours that puts the whole story out there and doesn't shy away from the very tragic aspects of a lot of his life is going to be a, a big element to that, is, is making sure that that story gets told in full. And uh, yeah. So, Andrew, do you have anything else to plug while I still have you here? <laughs> Ken, no, I mean, I, I sure appreciate you having me on the show. I mean, I guess the only thing to plug is I hope that people will give the book a shot, you know, and if they like it, tell somebody about it. It's tough being an author with a new book in a pandemic where you can't really get out there mm -hmm. and go to book festivals or bookstores, libraries, that sort of thing. So word of mouth means so much. Podcast, your review, the excerpt that out sports ran, that all is uh, appreciated by me anyway, but even more so in these circumstances. Yeah, we are, we are more than happy to help. And the fact that we are in a pandemic, everybody is still, or should be still at home, which means you got time, you should be reading, enlighten <laughs> yourself, culturalize yourself. The book is Singled Out, The True Story of Glenn Burke by Andrew Moranis, available at any book-related website, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere you can find it. Andrew, this has been such an enlightening, wonderful discussion, as the book is enlightening and wonderful, too. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Ken. I really appreciate it.